Welcome to Visual Reflux, a podcast put together by my friend Andrew Whitcliffe and myself, Vernon Wiley, a couple of uh, self-described pop nature fanatics here. And uh, basically, Andrew and I uh, have worked on podcasts for a few years now. We just successfully completed up a, a 50 run of the Comics Fondle, which focused in on comic books, the pop culture surrounding that. But after a few years, um, more and more of the show became devoted to um, other media types, particularly TV and uh, movies that deal with comic book type situations. And it was growing and kind of mutating in a way, right, Andrew? Yeah, so, it, it, I mean, I think it obviously, or it originally started, maybe not obviously, out of uh, probably the Netflix Marvel shows. So, you know, we were covering TV. We, we started to have uh, more TV to cover with the CW shows that we actually watched and things like that. So it just built out. And then, you know, you find you're not just watching the Marvel shows on Netflix, you're watching other Netflix shows and so forth. So it seemed as we got to the end of visual reflux, or I'm sorry, we got to the end of Comics Fondle that when we <laughs> launched, we should do something. We wanted to do something else, but it was pretty clear that Comics Fondle had reached the end of its, uh, its life. Yeah. Uh, just in terms of what we were concentrating on. Um, so visual reflux was born as... As he did with the Comics Fondle, actually. Vernon came up with the type. That, well, actually, you came up with Video Reflux, and we got to Visual Reflux. Was that right. how we came? Yeah. Whereas, as opposed to Comics Fondle, where Vernon, despite it being solely my blog for eight years before anybody else started writing there, Vernon came up with the title for that one, so... I love catchy. I love catchy phrases. What can I tell you? You know, but yeah, in in, in other ways too. Like uh, Comics Fonda was born of a need for to discuss, review, and uh, spread the word about independent types of uh, comic books that were outside the me- mainstream media that really deserved attention. And in some ways, we're kind of like we're we're working at a crossroads because most uh, movie and television that's developed are of insanely popular, very well-known characters, the, st- the type of which Andrew and I rarely ever visited on Comics Fondo. But we found ourselves, well, you know, TV and movies have reshaped the reality of how comics are perceived, so we eventually went that way. But in a way, I think we also uh, are in tune to the more outrageous uh, or independent efforts as well, and I think I think we're going to be looking for those as well as instead of like uh, the Flash or Captain Marvel movies also. Right. And that is a really good point that when we started the podcast, Marvel wasn't, DC hadn't failed so spectacularly twice yet, or three times, however many times you want to count DC failing to launch before they finally could uh, consecutively make hits. But it also seemed like more independent comics might get turned into properties. Um, it'd be, and that just sort of stopped happening. You know, it's like, we've gotten to the point where I think they adapted some Victor Santos comic for a Netflix movie, but it's not 
that would have been very exciting in 2003. <laughs> These days, you know, you're not excited unless there's a rumor of a Superman, Spider-Man crossover between studios, you know, like what's the point of being excited now that everything is possible? Right. Yeah. That, that builds up uh, enthusiasm that the uh, money studio system wants. It, it, it has to be there. Otherwise nothing happens, you know, and that's kind of sad. Uh, we see a lot of independent stuff. What was it? I just, I was reading one of the blogs that uh, Disney scrapped their plans for mouse guard, which is a pretty good example of something that was an independent comic book for a million years and had quite a wide variety among people who are like fantasy enthusiasts and Disney being the mountain that they are uh, purchased the property for media development and let it linger for years and then eventually decided they didn't want to use it. So on one hand, you feel sad for the independent artist creator that did it. But on the other hand, Disney doesn't need another hit. Yeah, I actually, um, this isn't even really anything we, we had planned on talking about, but I, I saw this headline um, in the local paper about how bad it is that Disney is um, sort of this, me this enormous media conglomerate. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, but is it, who this is not something that we need to be that concerned about. I don't necessarily, if Disney can make movies that everybody wants to see, I mean, I made the joke, I think when they bought Lucasfilm that eventually it would just be called going to the Disney's instead of going to the movies. Who, who cares as long as it's not bad? And yeah, yeah. okay, it stifles, you know, creative cre uh, creativity or something, but eh, like, who cares? Like, the, the creativity on this scale is nothing that we need to be concerned about anyway. It's, it, it's not that good to begin with. So, yeah. I, I well, the, the, the only concern I would have is like you get maybe uh, the big, when I grew up, it was the big three television networks. And then now with, uh, what would you call it, media conglomerates that, that own like every aspect of development and broadcasting and advertising within our entertainment system. You know, you've got like uh, Disney buying Fox. So it's easy to imagine two or three major media developers right. controlling most of what people see, you know, and access, but that's a whole nother uh, discussion for another day, I'm sure. But uh, anyway, that kind of sums it up to where we're at. We like to expose things that we find interesting and uh, be honest about the stuff that's not as interesting. It gets a lot of press too, you know? Yeah, that is uh, some of it is that there is there's finite amount of time and there's there are some interesting things. And I think we'll touch on it later that we've gotten to the point now where staying um, staying informed about the state of these, I guess, industries or genres it's not worth it in some ways. Like it's it's not basically it wasn't worth it to see aquaman I, it doesn't <laughs> well i read boxed it i found it okay but you're right it was pretty long and it certainly wasn't as entertaining as it should have been all right all right so, well let's tell you what we're going to be sectioning off stuff and uh what we decided to do television first right or well, anyway i just gave we're going to color television movies uh streaming types of things uh we're still going to continue our interest in comic books and graphic novels and but you gotta uh, wait. related what's that they got to wait for the comics, at least in this episode. If you don't like the order that we do things, let us know. Yeah, so. yeah. 
And we can yeah, change we that both, We both got emails. Uh, let's see. We'll save them at the end of the program so you yeah. can yell at us then. But we wanted to cover uh, fan-related incursions, too. Andrew's quite a fan of finding uh, fan-developed uh, visual stuff, and uh, we'll be covering that as well. And we want to go to uh, all terms of stuff. But we segregated it, I guess, and uh, stuff like that. So, I don't know. You want to jump into the movies, as it were? Let's jump into the movies now. Did you see Endgame? I did. I went on my day off. It was solo, and all the kids in Evanston had the day off, so it was a bit of a pain in the ass. But, uh, yeah, I did get to see it and. uh you know what? I have to say, overall, they did fine. Um, who's the directors on that? The Russo brothers. Yeah, I mean, t- to me, they seem to be pretty much uh, good practitioners of the craft, I guess. And, yeah. uh, you know, Endgame, it had some really good parts. Like, if I had to sum sum it up in one thing, I'd say, well, I kind of like the uh, impression that Infinity War left on me more so than Endgame, but Endgame was a nice tying up of a lot of things in the Marvel Universe, and it works on that aspect. Yeah, I, I think uh, the way I described it was it's a it's it's a disappointing sequel to Infinity War, but it's a fine conclusion for the Marvel, whatever they call it, the uh, Infinity Wars or whatever. Phase one or whatever the hell they called it. I uh, to... Well, it was, it was phases one through four. Three, so I think yeah. they, the Infinity Saga, I believe, is what they want to call it. Okay, that that's what that's what your box set will be called. Gotcha. Well, you know, and, and they did. I mean, overall, Marvel did a pretty good job of tying a lot of things up and introducing their characters and their strategy work because they kind of stuck to a stuck to their guns. And uh, while some of the films were stronger than others. Overall, I think they, I mean, box office alone is the big success story. I mean, regardless of us aesthetics and uh, Avengers Endgame certainly is walloping everything. Everybody wants to see it more than once. So I guess, I guess in that end, it worked, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, lots, I mean, you know, lots of Easter eggs, too, for those comic book fanatics, you know? Yeah. And I think that the interesting part about the Easter eggs and, you know, all the theories for what's going to happen going forward. As we record, the rumor is the, the Spider-Man previews coming out and everybody's hoping it'll address. Oh, and this is also the day that you can talk about Endgame spoilers. So, oh, OK, uh, according to the directors, but um, or as the directors requested, but the uh, Spider-Man trailer, everybody's hoping it'll address the five year jump forward. Which, you know, is going to be a thing um, that they're going to have to contend with. I think in many ways, Marvel has spent the last 10 years getting people ready for a Marvel movie universe. You know, one that yeah. one that can support, hopefully, um, Black Panther. Uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, Black Panther 2 alongside, I don't know a squirrel girl TV show and yeah. it, it is going to lead to the comics getting less important, but. Oh yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, they, they, they've got things like fantastic four and X-Men. They got incorporated into the quote unquote Marvel universe yet. And eh, they got, they got plenty of time and leeway to do it. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah. I also like the way they were like seeking out the current set of actors, which are getting a little long of tooth in the roles as it were to set you up for uh, new actors taking over their uh, characters to some degree as well. Yeah. I do think it's absolute nonsense that 10 years in or however long Chris Evans still doesn't get a decent Captain America arc. 
It's like, tough to do Captain America. I mean, I, you have to add a whole lot of stuff to him to get him to that level, I think. And uh, he hasn't dated well. I mean, as a conservative, righteous member of the democracy, I'm not sure that people are wholly vested with the idea of a Captain Mar- America like they were like World War Two and later, you know? Yeah, but I mean, you could be, well, I guess, no, I guess you could not do the more subversive Captain America arcs because it is Disney after all. But, but still, I feel like it'd be icky. (laughs) Disney did. Yeah. Disney's going to do a uh, Steve Gerber series where they adapt all of Steve Gerber's 80 or 70s uh, subversive stuff. And (laughs) man thing and defenders. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's a, he's a tough character, and they resolve that. You know, I thought that the movie they resolve that, that well, and I guess yeah. that ending. Um, yeah. Do, do you remember? I I don't know if you read it, but I, if you did, I think you hated it. Uh, there was a Robert Morales, the guy who wrote uh, Truth, and Chris Bacallo, Captain America Marvel Knights run, many years ago. And it ended with him getting a hold of the Cosmic Cube and reversing 9-11. Wow, that's very controversial in a comic book sort of way. Yeah, so, um, but as soon as, I think it was during Infinity War, I was like, oh, Cap's going to get a hold of the Cosmic Cube and he's just going to go, he's just going to go chill out, like he's done. Yeah, right, right. I mean, I I agree. (laughs) He says, I'm done. I, I'm human after all. I'm a, I'm a superhuman, but I do age slowly and I'm a powerful dude. But, you know, I've, I've hit the end of the run anyway. You know, what was it? You'll never see. Uh, what was it? Remember Kyle Baker's uh, Truth, Captain America? Yeah. Now, that would be a controversial movie. And it may be even a product of the times. And it might even be a good time to do it. But I don't know if Disney would ever touch that subject matter. But that was. That was, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the uh, African-American creator, Kyle Baker, creating, um, what would you call it? He went into the, the roots of the government chemical program for the super soldier, where the government took the uh, attitude that we can experiment on minority soldiers first, in particular blacks, because that's an offshoot of the uh, controversy regarding the uh, programs that actually existed in the government. So... That's an interesting thing for a Captain America film, but it's something they probably won't touch with a 10-foot pole anyway. Uh, you know, I think at this point, who knows what the possibilities are for spinoff shows and things like that. I think some of it's going to be this whole Disney Plus experiment. Now, if this works, um just in general what disney's going to be doing is delivering blockbuster mini series in a way i guess you'd say never before attempted because there's never been a time when when mini series were big in the 80s and 70s and 80s and stuff they just were big budget tv movies they were not big budget movies set over 8 hours and so now what we've got is you know disney doing streaming series that are going to be have super high budgets they're going to um 
have the movie stars in them. There's the chance the Loki series could now actually be something more than young Loki. And so it's it's just very interesting to see if this works. And they're they're leveraging the Marvel and the uh, Star Wars the most on this because I, I feel like it's not going to be as risky for Disney to do a series of Donald Duck shorts or DuckTales shorts. You know, like right. these are these are the movies they're going to be looked at. Their target audience is uh, wider. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What, what do you call it? The, um, and if they're very successful, uh, they'll expand from that. And if they fail utterly, uh, Disney will be the only one that has the rights to it. So they'll just bury it and we'll never see it again. You know, pretty much. And yeah. the other thing is Disney. I was talking to somebody about Disney Plus and then we'll move on to the, the next Marvel movie. <laughs> um, but I was talking to somebody about Disney Plus and it's going to be seven bucks a month. And I'm like, why wouldn't you? get disney plus and i feel like that's sort of gonna be their pitch like well i've got a family especially right like of course you're gonna get it if you have kids but why wouldn't you just if you if you are getting any streaming service seven bucks is not too much to add on right well that's where that gets tricky because you obviously want to throw netflix into the mix and by the time i think streaming services if they keep their services reasonably cheap I think an average firm family could obviously get two, three, or four different streaming services and ditch the cable if they think they can live without it. Right. And it's like streaming is not going to make home entertainment. It'll make it a teeny bit cheaper, I imagine. But until, um, I don't know, until there's a cheaper uh, home internet, solution than actually buying from your cable company who also might be trying to sell you tv services there is going to be uh it's going to take a while for streaming to get fully cheaper for all the options because at this point you could easily spend 60 bucks a month oh yeah and you know i i i don't know if i'd go that high because i'm not as big a tv watcher as some people but the idea of watching television without commercial interruptions which was the initial premise of cable. I hope they continue that. Or if they do put commercials on, don't let them interrupt the shows. Because when you really get used to watching Netflix, like 40 minute shows without commercial interruption, you know, and you could stop them whenever you want. So that's fine too. You know, pick it up the next day. Right. You know, I'll tell you what, here's, here's, we're going to put the boxing gloves on for two seconds. Uh, the Captain Marvel movie, uh, you and I seem to be on opposite sides. We, we do seem to be opposite sides of the coin on that. I, I like the uh, Captain Marvel movie. Well, you know, it, it was popular enough. I just, um, it seemed to me more of a commercial uh, guided venture. Uh, everyone involved with the project did a really good job. They all did professional work. I don't have any arguments about the costumes, the scenery, the CGI or the music or, or the, well, the actors, I, I wasn't as big a fan of Brie Lawson as some people. I don't think she's punchy enough, but I mean, it, I think the utter disappointment would be to me is Marvel after 20 films finally recognizes they need a female lead. The Me Too movement is probably at its strongest point right now because of the politics of the time. And I just wanted to see something more, maybe something a little more existential or interesting or textured, multi-layered than I got with Captain Marvel. What's your take? Uh, I, I think that 
I don't, you know, it's like the last batch of Marvels is when they really just finally hit for me. Yeah. Starting with uh, Black Panther and then the Spider-Man. But uh, yeah, I just thought, you know, yeah, it was not, it was not a trend transcendent cultural moment where everything aligned but it, it also was a marvel movie its chances of that were actually less than a billionth of a percent because in neither was black panther black panther could have been just as um ambitious but it's not gonna be because there's they're, they're movies that are supposed to make 700 million dollars at the minimum you know they've got to right. appeal to every single person on the face of the planet although um, I, I may be stereotypical but i think black panther succeed because it had that disney influence in it you know i mean i'm not saying you could read lion king into the scenes but it, it had like this organic growth that you got happy and peppy and you got behind the black panther with and everything you know whereas with captain marvel i was less convinced of uh i don't know the big fight you know well, you've also got to, I mean, some of that's the character uh, material. True. Like the Marvel movies don't ever deviate too far from comic book precedent. No, they're very good about it, too, surprisingly. You know? Yeah, you know, yeah. the DC movies don't give a shit. No, no, right. Marvel's follow through. They, they realize they have a really good skeleton to build something on, mm-hmm. and they do it. Whereas, uh, well, sadly enough, though, Captain Marvel didn't really have much of a skeleton to build on. It was always a pretty mediocre comic book. And, you know. Well, let's be fair. We didn't actually even read it when it was supposed to be good. So there is that. Oh, well, yeah. We had that. Was it the the Kelly? Did Kelly? Yeah, we didn't actually read Kelly Sue DeConnick's Captain Marvel. Yeah, we missed I've been needing to. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it might have been the only relevant comic in 30 years of Captain Marvel, I guess. And I think it was, but I'm just remembering how, especially with an origin story, um, establishing all of the space, Marvel space shit, is a big job. And I don't, I would not say that two Guardians of the Galaxy movies, one Thor movie, and. Uh, Doctor Strange, maybe I don't know. A little bit of Doctor Strange yeah. and Infinity War is enough to sort of, especially when it's set in a different time period and with a different set of aliens, with a different set of problems. Right. And the other thing is, Captain Marvel's origin uh, is tied to the X Men and Rogue and all sorts of crap like this. So they were really with Captain Marvel similar to Black Panther in a way, they were starting from scratch and she didn't have the, what was it? Avenger or Captain America civil war intro to give her backstory. Yeah. She only had that pager. So I, I feel like, well, I mean, it's just like comparing Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman is, kind of funny to me because Wonder Woman was such a profound disappointment even as a mediocre and one of the best DC movies it it still was incredibly mediocre given that they have 
80, 70, 80, 90 years of Wonder Woman lore to go on. They've got... Oh, you got the nostalgia, too, of the character, which, you know, when you're talking about Me Too movements, well, she's right for that, you know. But I would say that that complaint, that it doesn't... um, it doesn't explore its identity as a superhero movie during the Me Too movement. I think Captain Marvel certainly does it a little bit more than uh, Wonder Woman does. If oh, only yeah. she, she was, she's thrown as the main one of the main uh, godlike figures in the Marvel superhero universe, right in that one film. But also, you know, Brie Larson sort of famously and wonderfully dissed Casey Affleck on stage at the Oscars so I mean that was like a Captain Marvel moment even before she got cast you know true true so anyway yeah no I think I think you were I don't know like I I think there I'm at a point right now where I I'm unbelievably uh, confident in say the Marvel movies to turn in a acceptable to good product every time. Yeah, I, I could see that. There, there seems to be enough. Uh, uh, there's enough. What do you call that? Of their uh, reputation on the table, I think that they really take it seriously, and uh, we have nowhere to go but up. As long as they keep up the quality, we're good to go. You yeah. See- it- DC will play the same role as a media developer that they did as a comic book developer. Yes, they will. They will. Well, yeah. So, Phoenix. hey, what's this? What, what is this eighth grade thing that you've got on the media portion? What is this? That's the movies. There's this movie called Eighth Grade. Uh, you should go see it. It's uh, directed by a guy named Bo Burnham. Uh, stars a kid named Elsie Fisher. It's about an eighth grader's last week of eighth grade. And it's... Oh. Uh, She's a YouTuber, um, and it's just just her her last week of school. It's great. Uh, it's actually available on the Canopy streaming service. So, <laughs> excuse me, you can probably get that through your public library. Oh, excellent! I mean, we need access to the stuff like this. You know what I mean? That that sounds like a pretty good uh, premise for a film that you could mine a lot of good stuff out of. Yeah. So. That was that's why that's in there. Just something. And then when we do what we do in the shadows, which I'll talk about more in the TV section. But the movie is uh, I just saw it for the first time. Now, is this a mainstream release or another streaming release? Uh, well, I mean, it was I think it came out in theaters. It's a few years old. I think it's 2014. It's directed. It's co-directed by the guy who did Thor three. And then. Oh, good. It's um, the other guy did Flight of the Concords. If you watch that, I did not, which is why I missed what we do in the shadows for so long. Yeah, but it's awesome. You should you should definitely check this out. Uh, the quick description would be the Spinal Tap of vampire movies, but far better than Spinal Tap. Oh yeah, yeah. You did a blog post on why you hate vampire movies. That's yeah. yeah. Okay, good. I have to look that one up for sure because. Anything Spinal Tap and Vampire sounds like a, a success formula to me. And then, oh, I'm still talking because I added all this crap. Okay, so then real quick, the fan movies thing, I don't know. I don't know. 
There's a bunch of Miss Marvel fan movies going around right now, sort of proofs of concept. Some of them are really kind of good. I mean, eh, they're not good overall, but they're they're well made. Right. So it, it, we've gotten to this point where fan movies can be well made, um, which is why I actually watched the Jason versus Michael fan movie. Yeah, it wasn't really well made, but it was gloriously um, athletic in terms of the two slasher villains fighting. It was like a wrestling match. It was really cool. Like the fight choreography was really cool. It was it was 30 minutes and should have been about six, but the fighting (laughs) was really cool. You know, it's nice that we have like access to at least decent technology on a whole basis where you can do things like Miss Marvel movies or Jason versus Michael and stuff and, and come off with a product that everybody wants to see. You know what I mean? Right. And you're able this this YouTube fan movie thing is much different than when people used to camcord their spider-man movies to sell at comic-cons um well there's a there's a difference in our ages you said camcorder i'd, I'd be going for like super eight myself <laughs> see there you go you got the whole range here so yeah so it's gotten very different that uh that, for example there was a uh predator dark ages i think that's still streaming online and it's a predator fan movie where they it goes back and fights vikings and it's oh man it's really good because, you know, they kickstarted that. They were able to kickstart, you know, 10 grand to make a Predator movie or something. So the, the, the concept is just so cool. Like an average citizen can do a Kickstarter to do a fan movie that doesn't violate copyright infringement because they're not looking to make any money on it. And yet they can do like a, a half hour to an hour thing or whatever. And it gets, oh, I don't know how many millions of views on YouTube yet doesn't violate copy premises and an ordinary person can take anything they want and do it. You know, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm not there. I don't think it's, I don't think it's strictly legit. I think that they are just aren't worth suing, but at least paramount goes after star trek fan creators because it's start the professional level fan movie stuff started with star trek and then paramount really went after them now i i don't know much minutia about copyright law but 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 if, if producers of these things are just in it to make a product that they can distribute for free and don't make any personal income off it it becomes a tricky uh, law question as to what they get out of it and it, whether it's monetarily categorizable for right. companies to so, go after them, you know? Exactly. So it's kind of like, I think with the Star Trek thing, it got so professional that they they were able to step in um, and say it wasn't a fan thing if you're, you know, forming an LLC to hire a music composer or something. Right. But, Anyway, well, I, I'll leave it at this. I, I got an interesting thing where Steven Spielberg was uh, up in arms about streaming movies and how they shouldn't be considered for uh, Academy Awards and whatnot. And then I think about him as a young boy utilizing a thing like YouTube and digital recording for his own filmmaking career and how, well, you know what? It's not like it was when you were a kid, Steven, 
And so you kind of have to look at yourself in a different eye being born now. And it's just kind of funny. I thought it was kind of a contradiction in terms, but yeah, that's that. Very much considering, yeah, he was one of those super eight in the backyard kids. Exactly. What's what? What's the difference between him and some kid using his iPhone to record a film? I see very little difference there. Exactly. It, it's right. that he would never have gotten to where he was if he had had that kind of competition. Yeah, I could I could easily imagine that. You know, like how would it have changed his career? You know, and stuff like that. Yeah. So food for thought. You know, I mean, this whole thing is mutating before our eyes, and it's going to lead in a lot of directions we've never even thought of but uh now as far as the uh, actual mainstream tv stuff there's a lot of stuff on here and i'm not sure how much of it you're familiar with but i'll try to rattle it off pretty quick uh, right. did you get to see the umbrella academy at all you've been pretty busy though no uh, you're uh, gonna be talking until russian doll so go i got you all right well let's see i'll make it quick you know something i liked i i went into it with a bit of a jaundiced eye because i didn't really care for umbrella academy as a comic book i thought that, um, oh God, uh, this fella's name, Rockstar, wrote the thing. Anyway, uh, Dark Horse got, what, two series of Umbrella Academy books with the artist Gabriel uh, Ba and Fabio Moon, the brothers. And I thought it was all right. But then I got to see it on television, and they just so fully fleshed it out, and they uh, made the character stronger where they needed to be more three-dimensional, and they, uh, with the visual media, they were able to do this like physical set of where they went to school at the Umbrella Academy. And it just worked so magnificently. And it kept me going for eight or 10 episodes. And the, uh, the send off towards season two was fucking perfect. And so it, it would definitely be a case of the media transcending its origins, in my humble opinion. Ha ha. And uh, it worked out wonderfully. I, I highly recommend anybody who's a comic book fan to pursue that. I don't think you have to read the graphic novels because it had been 10 years since I'd read the damn thing. So I, I thought I was a go for it. Uh, let's see. The other one I want to mention is Sabrina season two, since that's been getting a lot of play. Um, picks up nicely. Their production values on the show are just excellent. And as long as uh, Roberto Sacasa remains in control of the storyline, there's some complaints about how it's uh, – kind of uh, mysterious plot lines that are forming together too slowly in season two for a direction as to what Sabrina is ultimately trying to uh, accomplish. I don't have that problem. I think each episode holds up well on its own. The characters are all really well done and fleshed out. And again, the production values on the show are really good. So if you like the absolutely evil series, you're not going to find the absolute grotesqueness in some ways that you found the comic books, but it comes close enough for a television series. So, so far so good on Sabrina anyway, uh, Russian dolls. Now that's one of the independent ones that you and I are trying to at least look at, you know, as alternatives to the mainstream stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, basically it's groundhog day, but you know, not, yeah. we're not, not to be nasty about it, but it's Groundhog Day, uh, and it's it's it takes a big twist in the middle uh, as far as what your expectations of the show are going to be. And it, it's a good show. Like I'm uh, hoping they renew it. Yeah, like it's yeah. nice to see what's her name uh, that actress. She's on the... Natasha Leone get a good lead part in something. It's been so long since she was on the cusp of stardom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You thought she'd have done it with Orange is the New Black, but nothing really happened with that, even though she was an outstanding actress and character in that. But uh, Russian Dolls, it gets pretty meta. And uh, in its, what, eight-episode yeah. uh, 
and it really gets to explore the concepts that Groundhog Day never did. Groundhog Day was entirely personal about one day, but this gets deeper. Yeah. Yeah. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was good stuff. Yeah, I, I like that, and that that's one of those uh, meta type comic book series you could easily say, hey, you know what, you love this. This is good stuff. Uh, Love, Death, and Ro- Robots. It's kind of like an experimental thing where they uh, farmed out a lot of what. Uh, I think it's 18 episodes of various length of computer animation dealing with science fiction and robots primarily. Uh, mixed bag. Half of them, I think, are worth watching. The other half are yeah stuff you've already seen before. The, it starts out kind of misogynistic, too, to some degree, which I'm surprised that no one really caught. Uh, a couple of them, I think it's episode one or three, was extremely misogynistic. And I was like, well, somebody just, you couldn't like farm this out to somebody else or use another example. So it kind of shot itself in the foot early, but it picked up on its better moments. Uh, did you get a chance to see any of those at all? No, it was sort of on the list. And then I heard your review of it and I was like, you know, I was looking for a show I could watch with the wife, not something that, you know, yeah. I'd watch and then feel slightly uncomfortable that I'd watch, you know, I was right. for that, you know. I was, I'm always looking for things to share with my wife to watch, you know, not that that's a pre-existing condition, but, you know, I, Love and Robots would have made me somewhat uncomfortable trying to view it with my spouse, so I just kind of let it go and watched it on my own, and some are good, some are bad, but, yeah, you can, you can pass. Now, uh, what's this Orville, man? I, I, I watched an episode of Orville, but not being a Star Trek fan, it really didn't get to me. What makes you uh, so curious about Orville? I'm not curious about Orville. Orville is Orville is a serious contender for I think it is definitely the best network television show right now. Um, I cert- I mean I don't watch a lot of network television, so I can't say that for sure. But unless there's something really good on uh, NBC that. I've never heard of or something like that. Orville is, so it's when it, they advertised it at the beginning. I dismissed it as galaxy quest, the TV show. Sure. With Seth MacFarlane running it. Sounds hip. But what it actually is, is this, um, self-aware Star Trek, the next generation homage slash improvement where they they do the really obvious sort of social commentary episodes from the first season or from the first series yeah where they they're not scared to look cheap in order to tell this story they sort of dismiss the idea that you look cheap by doing a planet that looks like earth or something uh-huh. and then they explore you know societal things there but the first season was good the second season has just had some amazing episodes oh wow, wow and um then they had this two-parter that basically had the same amount of special effects as a it had more special effects than the last star trek movie like it's a lot and it's it's really kind of weird because it's not like the spaceship design is cool the spaceship design is 
kind of silly, you know. I mean, so there's it's a no, knockoff. Everything's a knockoff on that show. Yeah. So it's it's well, you know, the special effects come to the forefront in a way that they don't normally do on TV with their budget. So it, it actually becomes a point about that actual plot episode. Exactly. Whatever. And then, I mean, it, I highly recommend this show. Uh, even I there's there's the Seth MacFarlane hurdle to get over. And then there's also the sort of, um, yeah, the Star Trek-y angle. But I think if you start from the beginning, I think it's the third episode of the series is the first one that, you know, like ruined my week. Like it (laughs) it made me cry and then I was just miserable and didn't want to watch the show again. Oh my. Is that a good or bad thing? In a good way. In a good way. So yeah, I I, I highly recommend The Orville. Uh, you know, it sounds it, it sounds like it's worth the time and everything. So I was like, now is that a thirty or a sixty minute show? Sixty, so forty two minute. That's amazing because like fully fifty percent of the content on that is parody, and yet they stretch it for sixty minutes, which is not easy in and of itself. I mean, uh, I watch I don't watch a lot of network TV, but a lot of it is just reality TV and game shows and stuff like that. The what do you call that? They seem to have gone towards what half hour sitcoms that seems to be the predominant form of where they're succeeding, I think, right now. And the Orville kind of fits in that, but it's an hour long show, also a drama, I guess, too. So the second season, it's been shedding the humor, uh, quite a bit this season, which is interesting because it's still casted for comedy, but yeah, that's uh, let's move on as we could talk about the orville i could talk about the orville for <laughs> well okay so what about this new tv show what okay yeah so, what, well, what is that base how does that spring off from the movie it's so it's the same concept of the movie but different characters in a different location instead of being somewhere in europe uh what we do in the shadows the tv show is about vampires from europe on staten island and they're oh, just okay. you know it's it's also, uh, did, did you watch the IT crowd? I did not. So uh, Matt Barry, who's on the IT crowd, Toast of London, uh, Snuffbox, a bunch of other great things. Basically, what we do in the shadows is a way of introducing, again, Matt Barry to American viewers. And he's, he's awesome in it. Uh, there's been six episodes so far. I'm not sure how far it's going. This season. Well, now what's, what service is that on? That's on FX, actually. FX. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's awesome. Uh, I'll have to catch that movie and then see again the yeah. TV show. It got me curious on that. Yeah, you got to do that. Yeah. Right. Well, streaming in general, we, we've got the two powerhouses here. The uh, Disney streaming service, which we talked about, that's supposed to launch later on this year. Although they still don't have a set date on it yet. Which no, is kind of yeah, not really. I mean, it's a streaming service. All they need to do is have the apps ready. Yeah, that, it's probably all going through beta testing as we speak, just right. waiting for a day when they can launch it. And then the, the new kid on the block, which is kind of an anomaly because – we're not really sure about it. It's kind of the, the DC streaming service, which has oh. promised a lot, but they want you to spend money on a network that doesn't have a lot of shows on it. So, and they, so D, uh, the DC universe streaming had two pieces of news um, recently. One is they cut the order on Swamp Thing. Okay from, I think, 13 to 10 or 8. 
which is concerning. And they, yeah, yeah, especially for first season. Yeah. And the initial thing was, oh, well, it's because Warner Brothers is going to launch their other streaming service in a couple of years, and DC Universe will be on that instead of on its own. Because DC Universe being on its own was kind of weird. It's not like Disney is launching Star Wars for 10 bucks, Marvel for 10 bucks. Uh, cartoons for 10 bucks they're launching everything for six or seven whereas warner brothers is doing dc streaming for i think 10 a month Ouch. that's three original shows um a bunch of catalog stuff but not it's not like i don't well you don't want to sit and watch you don't want to watch 40 year old episodes of super friends right so it's like that's a very specific specific audience then the other piece of news was is they put all of their available digital comics on there up to a year ago. So publication date of a year ago. And a couple of weeks before that, I was like, you know, if DC actually just put all their fucking comics online, that might be worth it streaming. And But all their comics online means the new shit. It means day and date. It's like, if you're going to fuck over uh, the long tail bookstore audience just fuck them over like fuck over right. everybody put it out don't, there don't, don't, yeah don't piecemeal it just get it out there because you know we some of the frustration of reading dc comics over the last seven years is their better stuff was probably coming out as digital first which i had no interest in figuring out how to read whereas with dc universe streaming they can give me that they can give me that on Wednesday. They can make a stupid chat hangout where we all talk about the comics we like on Wednesday or something. Right. They're replacing the comic book shop anyway, so just go ahead and do it at this point, right? Like, right, especially if you if you have exclusive uh, rights to, what, 75, 80 years of content. And so instead, they, you know, they half-assed it. And I mean, I know that... If I were a young comic reader today, I would subscribe to that, no question, because... Well, how far back does it go? It goes back all the way, which means I can read 70s Batman. I can read, you know, 80s. I can read the best of DC for 10 bucks a month. Which now, means, they, they, do they have all the content up now, or is it just bits and chunks that they nope. like? It's every, it's everything that's available, like on Comicsology. So it's not everything. I don't know if I could go and read. Uh, I don't know if they have all of Firestorm ready, for example. But they've got yeah. all the Swamp Thing now. Yeah, if yeah. I'm well, that's read good. Swamp, Swamp Thing's Thing, one. right? If yeah. I'm going to read Swamp Thing in 2019, I am definitely going to consider doing the DC Universe streaming service. Yeah, you'll get them all for 10 bucks, and you can read them in a month if you but, got that kind of tenacity. Exactly. And I mean, like, that's the focus. Like, advertise the streaming comic books separate from the streaming, and then, you know, like, advertise it as streaming comic books plus all these TV shows, including the new ones you really don't give a shit about, but whatever. And then advertise it as, oh, these cutting-edge streaming shows, all of our TV shows, all of our movies, and these comic books if you want to read, you know, a million comic books or something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's that. like they actually could market this right, and I'm almost talking myself into it if I do a, you know, 
Swamp Thing read through again, maybe I will do it through DC Universe streaming. I might not because who knows how they fucked up the comics a la Miracle Man at Marvel. But still, like, if I was a new reader today, this would be the best way to do it. But just, like, embrace that. Don't set it up to fail. Because DC Universe streaming, if it goes away when the Warner Brothers streaming thing launches, that also means every 80,000 digital comics for $9 a month goes away too. And that's well, maybe, bad. Well, maybe not. Maybe they can do a side thing. You know, they're always trying to add bells. One would, one would hope, except Warner Brothers is really bad at everything. So I yeah, have no right. confidence they, they, in that. The bad. only thing Warner Brothers is good at is the Warner Archive made on DVD, made on demand DVD program. That is all. And they, they make good home videos. And Warner you, and you can video? be sure that one person's in charge of that. Exactly. Warner Home <laughs> Video is great. Everything else about the company is like the guy, the president of Warner Brothers who had to resign because he was stalking some like starlet and promising to win her an Academy Award if she'd sleep with him again. <laughs> That's a metaphor for the entire company. Yeah. But, yeah. All right. Anyway. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, we, we, we won't harp on that, but you, you can get like the first month for free, right? Yeah. So it's a, it's a week or a month. I don't know. They give it to whatever you. Whatever it free. is. I was, that is what I would suggest right now. If you yeah. have 10 bucks a month that you are putting toward back not, issues, back issues back. <laughs> if you have 10 bucks a month in your comic book budget that you are putting toward back issues that you are buying from lone star online that you are doing comiXology back issues i would say definitely sign up for dc universe streaming excellent well i'll tell you what let's do some bullet points on the cw yeah we gotta we gotta get the regular comics through these other things yeah it's true yeah we All gotta right. get the regular comics but anyway uh the cw seems to be chugging along i'll bet like haphazardly at times uh the main shows you and I keep up with the Flash. That's in a that's in a weird state right now. Oh, yeah, I'm not caught up. I wanted to be caught up. I'm not. I would say it's. Is it the worst season of the Flash? Sixth. No, worst. I didn't. I didn't. Oh, it's not. Well, yeah, yeah. I'd have to say it's the worst in terms of lack of focus. It it, it accomplished a couple of good episodes. Uh, one but, particularly with Nora. And, and her yes, thing in the, that was great. The, and yeah, I wanted to see a show with her and her buddy. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it's complete stopping and starting. And the the whole villain, you and I think Cicada is easily the most boring television villain we've ever seen. And uh, they gotta they gotta figure out a reason to get back to like single episodes or two parters when they stretch this stuff over a whole season. It really kills the momentum and it just befuddles any kind of plot line they have for each individual episode i think yeah it's it's a mess and now supergirl has has benefited from this though lately okay Uh, i i i actually like the plot lines and it's uh it it has a congruence to reality because uh it's kind of mirroring the whole trump administration and the immigration thing regarding quote-unquote aliens on earth and stuff like that and they made a lot of hash about like imitating some of the stuff that's going on and uh, the revolving cast of Supergirl seems to go, do good. Like they have characters that come on for a couple of years and then move on, like Monel. And uh, uh, there, there's been a few, but I, I just imagine Brainiac being good for another season and leaving him and stuff like that. They seem to turn it over and keep it moving enough to where it's succeeding where the Flash isn't. Yeah, I actually have not watched this whole 2019 episode, so I've got a lot. I'm gonna 
run through it. Well, it's, uh, it's more fun than Flash, but yeah. uh, the, the success is easy. Was it Legends of the DC Universe? Yeah, that's did, the good We one. did not forget their roots as a single episode program. No, they are, it's, it's a, it's a sh shock how much better executed that show is than the other ones. Um, yeah, like, and it's, I'm surprised it's not in the forefront because it's certainly a lot more watchable. Exactly, and I mean, that's the one that's going to be, you're going to binge streaming. I'm going to watch Legends Season 3 again, or whatever we're on someday. I'm never going to watch Flash Season 6 again. No. Like, no. And, 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 and getting to it, like, they, they have that revolving cast of characters on DC Legends. Yeah. Like, there's only been a couple of them that have been on for the duration of the show, where the other ones have been revolving on and off, and that, that is very successful, I think. Yeah, they've done really well with that. And they, they really, like I said, it, I like constant. I like Matt Ryan's Constantine now. I'm on board. I think that the silliness of having him in a spaceship with his trench coat, it, it makes it work for the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. So it, bringing him on and bringing him off is good stuff. And uh, Constantine, a character I wouldn't have initially thought would fit into like the hyper science fiction-y fantasy type thing works really good with that. Uh, let's see. So that's the CW in a nutshell. Um, I'm going to mention quickly uh, a discovery I had with, uh, not that everybody doesn't know who Ricky Gervais is from uh, the things, but I, but Netflix has been offering some of his older shows from the BBC on there. And this is the guy that did the uh, original office for BBC, which was probably one of the funniest, nastiest television shows I ever saw in my life. But they promoted Aftermath, which is a six or eight or episode or about a man who's trying to come to terms with his own existence after his wife passes on. And uh, it succeeds because Ricky Gervais basically gets to play an asshole, which he's really good at. And uh, the rest of it less so. It gets a little syrupy at times, but his relationship with his expired wife can't be denied. And it's done in such a way that you really – you really feel it. He really understands what it is to go through something like that and really tries to portray it on television. And then the uh, earlier series, which which is better, the Derek, where he plays this 50-year-old man, autistic, 50-year-old autistic man who works in a nursing home, is just utterly sublime. I think everybody in the world should be subjected to the first six or eight episodes of Derek because it really brings you down to like a human level. And I think one of the greatest things I find about this character and everybody who was around him talks about him being the kindest person they've ever known. And even he reflects that. He goes, the greatest thing you could do on earth is kindness because it doesn't matter whether you're receiving kindness or giving it. It just makes you feel good. And that pretty much sums it up there. But uh, that those his stuff is really worth pursuing if you have any, uh, I don't know, interest in Ricky Gervais. He's a, he's a lot stronger person than I thought he was. But after watching Aftermath and Derek, he really explores subject matters that just aren't touched very often. So look those up if you have any curiosity. Very cool. I was just thinking, um, let's, I'm going to make a, so after, usually I do this with uh, our year end episodes, I make these long notes of all the stuff Vernon talks about that I should <laughs> watch or read. And then I, I somehow never get around to doing it. But for this, for visual reflux, I'm going to make some sort of a lit checklist of recommendations from the show 
that it's going to be available to everyone, including Excellent. Me. Yeah, that way you don't have to listen to us and write shit down. Right. So that's the idea is, is you can listen and then have the checklist waiting for you at the end. And hopefully I will figure that out in time for this episode. But there you uh, go. Yeah. So next we're going to talk about current comics. Yeah, uh, are, you, are you okay on time? Uh, I'm doing fine right now. Okay. So we're going to try to keep this to an hour. We did not do that this week, but we will. Uh, that's the goal for next time. All right. Uh, we'll do some quickie reviews on the comics this time and, and burn through them there. Um, latest releases, Alan Moore, a great comic book writer whose career is sadly ending as he is fed up with comic books, manages to put out perhaps one of the nicest uh, navel-gazing uh superhero mainstream comics of complexity and texture in the latest League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, The Tempest, which has more shit going on to it than you could possibly cram into 11 issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, more characters, uh, the meta situations, all the English uh, infusions, the fictional characters out of literature. Alan Moore has just like combined them into this big grand guignol of uh, fight scenes and, and interplanetary dimensional fights and, and get togethers for the bad guys. And the book is not for everyone. If you don't want to spend a half hour reading a comic book and have to read it again, you're going to be in tough straits here. But uh, for those of us more challenging comic book readers, it's probably the last word in superhero comics. And I think that's what it's purported to be. So look that one up We're we're still got one issue to go. So I don't have a finish yet to talk about, but perhaps by the next podcast, I'll be able to tell you how they tie it up. First five issues have been great. Dan O'Neill is like one of the most fucking insane cartoon comic book artists in the world and highly recommended. And then we'll uh, touch upon the other modern one that you and I love is uh, the independent guy known as Kevin Huzinga, who I hope we're... Uh, Huzinga! Huzinga, uh, yes. And, uh, but he, he, he's a guy who started out doing his own, um, oh, what do you call it? independently produced mini comics, probably done at the Xerox FedEx and sent out via... Is it Itzy or whatever they call it? The no, he didn't. No, 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 not Huzinga. No, Huzinga started. He was one of the. Remember when Fanagraphics was doing those oversized magazines? Oh, anthologies. No, not the anthologies. Their their attempt to uh, make people read good comics before that. Um, Lost Tales of Palomar was the other one. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the, the the formatting. The big uh, what comics. was it? Uh, yeah, they had a they had a goofy name for that. I forget what the hell it was though. But they did a, a, a lot of interesting ones. Yeah, what the heck was it? Um, well, they were eight dollar comics. And they were eight dollar. Yeah. Okay, you talk for a second. Uh, talk about Fielder, yeah. and I'm gonna look this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he, Fielder One is his most recent effort. Um, it's done in the same format as the Fanographics books, and it's actually put out by Drawn and Quarterly. I noticed that in the, the, the uh, Indica, he doesn't say published by Drawn and Quarterly or Fanographics. It says distributed yeah, by Yeah, they're just distributed. They're both just distributing him now. It's right. different. Yeah. Right. And I noticed one said pr uh, printed in South Korea of all places. I'm like, why? Why do we have to go all the way to South Korea? But I guess that makes it cheap enough to where $8 is uh, laudable. But Fielder One was a remarkable change in Kevin's approach, who normally does this really formalistic 
type of examination of states of mind and consciousness and even subject matters he gets involved with, like geology and whatnot, and uh, his relationships with his wife and their co-existences, creators of uh, fantasy and comic material or whatever. And Fielder was kind of, it, it, it was it was like an, uh, a top point, but yet it was also disappointing for me. How did you feel about Fielder? Well, now, so I've missed Genji's six. Yeah, five and six were two-parters. Yeah, so I am behind on my main Huizinga, but I am caught up on my mini Huizinga, which means that I have read the first two parts of uh, one of the stories in Fielder, including one that is a photocopied uh, zine that you buy straight from him. So it's like, yeah, it's been hard to keep up, but it's he's basically redrawing old comics and just or he's adapting them faithfully, but it, as a subversively, a, subversively, but not that subversively. It's like no. he's turning them into like a long form comic strip, but is he like just the humor beats and things like that and the way he paces the, the dialogue. So it's, it's very different. And so I liked it as the formal experiment. I think more than you did because it, th- there is a Genji's cameo and it is disappointing. Well, um, yeah, it, it, it jars you from the reality. Yeah. You know, Genji just, it's his everyman character that he does the biographical stories on. But, uh, the, you know, the, the Kona examinations I thought were good. It was the, the story in Fielder where he talks about depicting hair. Oh, how, that, yeah. See, now you didn't like that, right? I didn't like that. I thought, I, I thought liked that, it. I well, thought it, you know, it was. I thought it was very melancholy and tough, which I'm okay with as far as independent creators. But to me, it sounded like he was either turning a corner or shutting a book on his old life or whatever. I don't know, but I, I, I was wondering if we're going to see any more from him after that. Well, right, especially because it's it's um it's about him. Okay, so Question. this last story is about a comic book artist who sort of fails and ends up a teacher at a school who zingas at a teacher at an art school yes which is where some of his pamphlets come from by the way thank you and like his classes you can get them in pamphlet form but and i i refuse to believe that that is his take on his uh being in a, a an education being an education. Of well, 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 it's, it seems like he was part of a school and then decided to start his own school. But I don't think he's actually done that. Like I, and this fielder has on the back of it work from his students. So I don't actually think that he's being this big of a Nietzscheist. Uh, yeah, I was going to say fatalist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. So, the sto- part of the story is he was supposed this this stand-in for Huizinga or whatever was supposed Glinky. to be going back and re and getting his old material ready for a collection because it's so hard to read by itself. So Genji's is done, and that's what Huizinga is supposed to be doing. So like the story is yes, are we never going to see collected Genji's? You know, I, 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 I have to say, I, I felt more fatalistic about it. Like, like he never thought there'd be a market for it, but apparently Drawn and Quarterly wanted to do it. Uh, 
but to me, it was all the bit about like the self-reflection and how he was not quite where he wanted to be. I'll assume he's in his forties. I don't know. Um, am I correct? I, in, yes. Through, I just, he, did he go through three marriages? Did I, did I misinterpret that? That was in the, I don't think Huzinga has gone through three. I, maybe he has. But I don't like, know that, that, that. That's where it jarred me. He, he went from, a distance perception of reality but, to a self-reveal, like I, whoa, you know, or not? I don't think it is. I, I think it's, I think it's too silly because he wouldn't have been able to produce Fielder if he if he were that concentrated on hair in real life. But also, also, yeah. he's got more work scheduled, like for release. Not that he has to do and is late on stuff that's coming out. Now I'm trying to remember. Back when Huzinga popped up in the mid in the mid aughts, when we started getting excited about, and it's the Ignatz series. That Ignatz, was the name. Ignatz was the name of the series, and we didn't. There were some that I liked that you didn't like. There were some that you liked that I didn't like. But the Ignatz series was great. Like, was it Cocachino it, Press or something? Cocachino Press. If they put those out at. $3.99 an issue that could have been made the difference yeah. that would have made that could have been the fanographics revolution it's, yeah and, and marvel and dc could afford to do that and take a loss or break even whereas fanographics and right. quarterly could but you know? they couldn't I, I think some of the mistake was doing it at that size yeah yeah we have seen, hated it because it didn't fit anywhere we have seen in the last 10 years that the People are willing to buy zines online. We are willing to buy manga-sized floppies online, and it's no big deal. If they had put it out, even at a reduced size, just to get it out there, that should have been the focus with Ignatz. But yeah. anyway, so yeah. Ignatz was really cool, but at that time, I swear Huzinga was like working at a gas station <laughs> and making game G's, but his day job was at a gas station. Well, now we know that he was as a comic book teacher at some odd. See, I don't think it was, but anyway, so uh, anyway, uh, but we're, we're looking forward to Felder too, or whatever it is. Cause we want to find out whether Kevin survives or not. Yeah. And I mean, so I think, yeah, who's in God, definitely going to be big on the checklist. Damn so I put this on here. Um, even though Vernon has, you have read, as far as I know, two licensed comic books. It was the Paul Gullacy Star Wars. Probably. Is that correct? Yes. So that Vernon is not a person who reads licensed comics. I have, I grew up, uh, I got into Dark Horse because of their licenses. I am, I'm not ashamed to read licensed comics. They are not good 99% of the time, but I am glad to have, like, RoboCop Last Stand, uh, Koket Ozakin's artwork has informed, you know, my philosophy of art. So it was worth it just for that. But anyway, uh, Alien 3, the unproduced screenplay, based on, um, da, 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 what's that guy's name? William Gibson, cyberpunk guy William Gibson's original screenplay for Alien 3 that either got fucked up because of a writer's strike or because something. Uh, just at Fox. And worse is it the 
subtitle of the series it, this is a new imprint from dark horse 20th century fox uncovered because boom did a an adaptation of rod serling's planet of the apes script which is different than the final one in the movie so is, have we gotten to the point where script adaptations are good necessarily or by default or acceptable by default no we have not but alien three the unproduced screenplay on the other hand it's it's adapted by johnny christmas who you know you know johnny christmas and he drew it and inked it too um it's it's pretty good like it's well the key thing is worth seeing i mean that's that's or worth reading like yeah. it is it, it if you are an alien fan this is worth reading um if you are a william gibson fan i don't know if it's worth reading but if you are an alien 3 fan it's worth reading or an alien fan in general it's worth reading um so since i'm king of tie-ins i like that yeah and then um it's it, it, the idea of it i don't know if it was because the comic was successful enough but they're actually going to do an audio drama of it, like a streaming thing, because we're now going to do radio shows again where actors do voices and shit because podcasting is going to be everywhere. Thank you for listening to our podcast on Anchor, by the way. Um, but they're going to do, they're going to record the script with uh, Lance Henriksen and Michael Bean doing the voices of their characters from Aliens. Oh man, it, it just shows another metamorphosis of uh, yeah, of the role of digital media. That's kind of cool. It's yeah, so things we're getting into a really weird time where it's not unthinkable that we could be listening to audio or podcast dramas again. Hey, be like the old radio shows, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, a I can't even imagine listening to a story as I drive to work, but it's possible. Um, yeah, with sound I, effects and everything. Yeah. So uh, I guess the next two are mine too. So real quick, we'll do the uh, Alien what? comic book. What the hell is it? The Alien Cat book. Um, Alien Cat book, is that? Yes, of Jonesy. So there is a 60-page wordless adaptation of alien from the cat's perspective by a guy named rory lucy and it's it i i think it was in diamond but it's not being promoted as a graphic novel but it is a comic strip it's okay um get it from the library again if you're an alien fan um and a cat person because it's <laughs> it, it's Sounds very like nice mix yeah i mean like it's not entirely successful because it's not entirely successful i wrote a post about it that's on visual reflux but it's kind of interesting to see um i'm talking about that and something in a graphic novel a ya graphic novel called kiss number eight by uh ellen uh, drawn by Ellen Crenshaw, written by Colleen Venable, too, and I'm, uh, Colleen A.F. Venable, sorry, uh, put them together because they don't, they ignore certain graphic novel slash comic book storytelling practices because to distance themselves 
but it's like they're not using these devices, these narrative devices that are already these narrative systems that can be employed. Like it would have helped if Kiss Number Eight was more like uh, plotted more like a JSA crossover issue or some shit. Like these things have been done before. The sort of plotting or focus, story focus. Like they're not comic booky enough. And it's interesting that people, creators are ignoring these already working uh, tools. That's too bad. And it's editing. Again, it's the, this is the thing that the editors should know about because it's like little stuff. Like the kiss number eight, doesn't have any natural uh it doesn't have any chapters and it doesn't have any natural pause points it is a 192 page single sitting read kind of like manga and is that how manga is well you pretty much like paperbacks and they're like non-stop they're just they're just like reprints but but at least in the japanese they're serialized but when you get them over here translated they're like in a two or three hundred page paperback and you're supposed to read it through in like 20 minutes or so yeah, see, that's now that's I, okay. That makes some sense, but it also is not the best way to do this. I, yeah, um, I've often wondered, like, the effects on reading and younger people in manga, and if they think that's like the the preferred way. If you because so many kids are like inured with that style of comic book, you know, and I'm like, yeah, Ugh. you know, some very very little of it works, just like in American comics, but it also perpetuates like this. Uh, gotcha. template that people are forced to work with because it's popular and I don't know if that works for everybody. Okay. That makes sense now. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to our historic blasts from the past, which are all me at this point? Uh, nope. Nope. You, you can have you can have the first one. I can chime in on the last, second two real quick. Okay. Yeah, historic blasts from the past. That's where Andrew and I find old shit to read. Whether it's been reprinted or kickstarted or it's just something we pick up at a bookstore, but... Uh, I, I was kind of cool that you showed me, a, uh, sent me a pick on all these uh, Mike Plug books. Was that a Kickstarter or what was that? It, it was a Kickstarter for the Art of Plug Volume Two, and since I didn't have Volume One, I spent lots of money that I shouldn't <laughs> have. But they are Mike Plug art books, and they are. I'm going to be doing a series of posts on them once I have time. There, he painted the. Werewolf by Night covers in the late 90s for a Marvel project that never happened. They're fucking amazing. Mike Plug is a great depictor of the macabre and the spiritual and the evil. Just wait. I'm going to do a whole series of these on visual reflux. I don't know when I'm going to start. Not today, but because I haven't even cracked these books. So I'm going to read these books and share some the art because ah I, they're prohibitively expensive they are probably not at your local library your local library can probably get them there are no ebook copies so like these are they're really neat and i'm gonna i, <laughs> I, I, I gotta <laughs> share yeah. some of this stuff because like if if you're interested in this stuff you're probably already trying to figure out where to get them from um if you're not interested because you don't know about it 
you know, like Mike Pluke has got to get out there. Like, yeah, yeah. Google, Google him up on uh, Google images. When we Google, I want some good stuff for Mike Plug, And, you know, if I got to put it out there, I'm going to put it out there. So when the Google results come up, well, he's, he's some good Mike Plug. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's a great, he's a great, uh, like tail end of golden age, silver age, bronze age artist. And, uh, his, he, he's very reminiscent of Will Eisner, who did the spirit. He's got this real wonderfully drippy, inky style. He's great uh, for the uh, beginning comic book artist to learn a lot about how to ink, too. So he's just one of those great uh, characters, unsung characters of comic book art history. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and these books are, anyway. So yeah. uh, now we're going to talk about uh, Punisher Max. Yeah, which I have started now. I read Punisher Born, which I might have even read long enough ago. I talked about during the last podcast, but uh, for Comics Fondle, but maybe not. I think maybe we talked about it in the sort of demo for this this show. But Punisher Born is four issues. It was the first Punisher Max series, so you got to remember or. I don't know if you, you have to remember, but the situation was Marvel after about 12 years after DC went suggested for mature audiences and seven years after DC went vertigo, Marvel introduced the Max series, which was going to be NC-17-ish comics. Like lots of sex, lots of violence, lots of... Um, language and not lots of but you know lots of you know i mean it was gore it was punisher is meant to be depicted right so that was the promise because punisher took a while to get a max series remember oh man well that's joe casada yeah yeah so they took a while to do punisher and so the born series was the first one and that's the punisher's origin in vietnam which had never been told it is not it has some good stuff in it, but it is not a success overall. Um, and then about a year later, the Punisher Max series started with Ennis and Louis LaRosa on art and Tom Palmer on inks. I'm not sure if Palmer sticks around for subsequent arcs, but he actually did ink Born. So Punisher Max is... Garth Ennis doing a serious Punisher comic. Um, yeah, this should have been the TV show. Four years after doing, after four years of a not so serious Punisher comic, more of a preacher meets Punisher. Yeah, turn, it, yeah. There was a black humor one as opposed to like a straight realistic shooter. Right. And this was going to be a straight realistic Punisher. And so the first arc which I've started writing about. I've only written about the first issue. Hopefully I'll get the second issue written today. Uh, The first arc is about the Punisher. It's called In the Beginning, which comes with a lot of weight. And it's sort of a introduction to the Marvel Max Punisher who's age appropriate. His family was, he served in Vietnam. His family was killed in 1976. It takes place in 2004. Uh, And the first arc deals with his old friend, Microchip, selling him out to the CIA to go kill Bin Laden. 
great plot. Great plot, uh, very timely. And uh, so Microchip was his sidekick in the like Punisher War Journal gun porn era, Chuck Dixon era of, uh, you know. But more, you know, even though those comics were like serious and and somewhat violent by their standards, uh, Microchip lasted for a while. And then when when you dug this up and I reread it, I was just like really amazed at the contradictions or not contradictions, but we watched the Punisher series on Netflix. And yeah, they don't do this to them. Yeah. No, and, and the micro that's featured in the Punisher Max is years after they ended their relationship and him trying to rekindle some use for the Punisher. And that's the kind of funny thing. Micro tries to utilize the Punisher as a tool to some degree and how yeah. it blows up in his face. It's a very, like, it's very meta in that microchip becomes Ennis's, like, stand-in for the idea that there should be a Punisher comic where he goes and hunts Bin Laden. Right. Like, and so it just, you get to the end of this introduction arc and you're, you don't exactly know where Ennis is going to go with it because you realize that your expectations for the Frank Castle character have been wrong. Even based on what you saw at the beginning of the, of the story, like we were leaving it not understanding anything about Punisher Max, Frank Castle outside he's not what we expected. Yeah. He reinvents like Punisher for the comics and, 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 and continues. I, I don't, I never read any Punisher comics prior to that, but Ennis's takes uh, Punisher is the catalyst for stories. He really wants to tell. And the Punisher is just like, like I say, the catalyst, he's not really a uh, big but character it, of his own right. Right. In this one, he spends the third issue, not saying a word. Yeah, he doesn't say shit. He's just a killer. And so, you know, we're... No, but when Microchip's interrogating him, he doesn't say a word. Nope. He says, like, 12 words, actually. It's counted. And so that's, like, why when they did the TV show, we're like, well, you've actually got the perfect fucking TV show because every Ennis arc is basically two episodes... is a two-parter of a TV show, and they could have done it like this. They did, you know, the first season's great, whatever, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it gets off, and i just trying to remember now going back and writing about it, that there was also this added thing that Ennis wasn't just doing another new Punisher series, he was doing the first Punisher Max series. He was putting a claim on the character, and like, but also selling his vision for the character with these. Yeah. And that's, that's in a way that Ennis doesn't usually give a shit about. He does with his war comics, but with his, with Preacher, with the boys, you know. With they're his characters. Thing, they're his characters. With a thing called Love, or a train called Love, Yeah, like, he doesn't give you an onboarding time. He doesn't give you a time to get acclimated to the um, ground situation. He doesn't, he's not welcoming with those you read those and you get on board or you don't read them with the punisher he actually takes the time 
he doesn't just take the time to get people on board. He gets he takes the time to say, yeah, we're not doing this Punisher versus Bin Laden thing. It's a dumb idea. Here's why. Like that's dumb. Yeah, and the Punisher says it to Micro. It's great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, 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 and you have to say too that there's, there's very few writers that make a character their own. But after you read this arc of Ennis's with the Punisher, you know instinctively there is no better writer for the Punisher than Garth Ennis. Right. There is no other way to really do. I mean, they did it on the TV show, but even that has a certain air of TV show logic to it. Yeah. Whereas. This does not introduce, it doesn't, uh, I don't know. It's, you just, what am, how, I'm trying, the realism of the comic, Ennis is aware of what he can get away with. Easy. Yeah, that's what it is. Ennis is aware of what he can get away with for how he's going to depict Punisher as realistic. Whereas on TV, they don't they know their limits to what they yeah. can get away with. Yeah, you like couldn't they, get away with the violence on television that he shows. Right. This. And he knows what he can get away with and how to get away with it. Like, I mean, oh, okay, we'll, we'll just spoil it real quick um, as the last point. It ends with him killing Microchip because Microchip betrayed him. Not, no, not because Microchip betrayed him, but in becoming, in betraying Frank, he, be, he, um, he, he becomes one of the bad guys. He, right. he joins a drug running operation. Well, and... a government cabal off shooting with some bad agents that utilize their coexistence with the United States government as a, uh, with her a means to an end yes yes and so it's it's and it's not micro's not working like assigned to work with these guys he's working for the bad guy the bad guy is doing this in very bad ways hurting obviously hurting lots of people like and so you know it's just like microchip thinks he's in a buddy movie and what the arc is about is realizing that the idea of the Punisher in a buddy movie is impossible. It does yep. not right. It, it does not work. And, and this so, is from a guy who is as close to anybody as Frank. And, that, and he, he never. It turns out he never understood what they were doing, what he was doing. He never understood why Frank was doing it. And it's very interesting just to see that play out, but. Anyway, so that's just, I mean, it's its a really, I don't know how much familiarity you have to have with the Punisher to go into it. None whatsoever. Uh, none whatsoever, yes, but I, to, I guess, yeah, that's true. But if, to sort of appreciate the leaps and bounds of Ennis's, like, invention here, like, you, you, you do need to have, like, the bad baseline in some ways right right the irony of, of of micro is is there and the the history of frank is 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 really easy to grasp it's a pretty simple thing you know but i just like it because of its sheer brutality i think <laughs> yes and i would suggest not reading born before reading nah skip born yeah it's 
he does just better that. Vietnam stories later on down the line. Yeah. And then the last thing is I finally read my Eltingville fan club. Yeah, what a nice collection by Evan Dorkin. And what does it do? It combines like all the Eltingville fan club stories into one book. Yes. What a what a chunk read. Uh, good Lord. Like you can read an issue of uh, it, it, he, he's a it humorist. Took a while. Yeah, Eldingville fan club is uh, possibly the end game of uh, self-flagellation for fanboys of any type of fantasy hobby you could imagine with this group of, uh, I don't know, what is it, four individuals that have specialties yeah. in their own fan stuff. And Evan <sighs> Dorkin just makes mercilessly nasty fun of know, them. coverage of the whole works. It's really tough stuff, but funny as shit, though, all the way through. Yeah, um, I actually won the collection, which uh, was awesome. I won it by retweeting him. Oh, man. That's I know. I, I, I remember when it came out, I was like, I put it on like a to-get list or something. But then all of a sudden, uh, I get a tweet from him who's like, you won, I need your address. And I'm just like, <laughs> all right. I'll take it. Well, for me, the Eltonville fan club was his most successful creation. Because he's a very funny cartoonist, and he does these great societal, ridiculous type stuff. But with Eltingville Fan Club, he really brought it home because he has an intimate knowledge of all the people and the top body types that exist within our our hobby and our base and our business. And, <laughs> and uh, the, the way he ends it, too, like he had an ending for it. Like the final story yeah. is just a great capitulation of everything that's gone before and what happens now, you know? Yeah, it's... It's really great stuff. Um, it took me two sets. I I was going to read it all the way through, but uh, Matt. It's who, dense. Yeah, Matt, who also I wrote a comics fondle and did the movie specials over there for the podcast. He told me, you know, you can't you can't do it in one sit. You shouldn't no. do that. And so I did it in two. That's pretty and good. Like, that was pretty good. It was, it was, it was hard. It was actually, you know, it was a little rough at times because it is so. What well, demands, it demands time and reflection. It demands time and the reflection that it demands is, you know, you know, Evan Dorkin's saying some things about how you feel about your favorite things too. Like, and you got to think about that. Like, you got to think about why you're laughing. And right. You got to think about, yeah. I mean, like, it gets, it's, it's, it, Eltingville is like, what if Family Guy were great in some ways, but also a lot more serious. And it's pretty focused. I mean, yeah. Those fanboys with thin skins need not apply because we all exist within the members of the Eltingville fan club. Exactly. Great so. stuff great stuff yeah well there you go man an hour and a half of chunky goodness uh not too bad i think we covered a lot of good subjects today. we did uh and we're we're gonna shoot like i said we're gonna shoot for an hour um but you know we we had big lists today we even well, if it didn't seem like we did and we we had a lot of catch-up to do since the uh comics funnel podcast so you're gonna be able to subscribe to visual reflux the podcast on literally not literally on everything figuratively on figuratively everything you're going to be able to subscribe on everything that anchor will create a podcast feed for you're going to be able to re uh listen on 
the Comics Gallery uh, Facebook page. We're, uh, we'll link to it on there. To episode releases, visualreflux.com, uh, where I do a lot of blogging, and Vernon has done a little because Vernon is busy. Well, I like to write about comics. That's my thing. I'm not a blogger. I find something I want to focus in on, like uh, comic yeah. books. Kevin Huzinga, I just did that uh, yeah. review of his latest work, and uh, that's that's my bag. That's what I like to blog about. So, yeah, and I'm, I'm using Visual Reflux sort of as uh, trying, to, trying to do old-time blogging today. Well, good luck. I, your, your, yeah. your daily post, I'm like, I'm trying to keep up with them. And that's like, I got to sit here and do them all in once because I can't get on. I don't get on a computer that much. I'm like, wow, yeah. he's got three posts already. I better catch up here. But uh, anyway, what's our, what's our email address so people can wail on us? Uh, so you know what? Uh, go to Visual Reflux and uh, leave a comment or you'll be able to comment on any of the podcast sharing. I Go think ahead. you're able to comment on Anchor. But uh, what else was I going to say? So yeah, an hour long. I, we don't have a schedule yet. I, tentatively, we're in a month, but I'm gonna. We'll see. I'm gonna. Maybe I'll try to talk Vernon every three weeks, something like that. We have might a, work. We have a recording time now that we didn't know we had, or it never occurred to us before. That's so. True. That that always was sort of a. We had a bad recording time for Comics Fondle. Maybe we'll have a better one for Visual Reflux. Uh, what else? Um, yeah, we want to hear from you. That's the main thing. Yes. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, head over to visualreflux.com. Take a look around. Uh, there, I'm going to have that checklist for everything that we recommend that we talked about, and that will be available somehow. I don't know how yet. I'm going to figure that out today before the episode goes up. And so, yeah, um, happy 20 May 8-ish. Uh, let's say we get this out tomorrow. So happy May 7th, 2019 <laughs> from May 6th. Hopefully nothing fucking God awful happens, but you know, that's 75. Gotta hate to not to be able to see another Marvel movie. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Right. Don't be fatalistic. Wow. Uh, well, kids, right. thanks for listening. Uh, let us know. And if we like your comments, we'll share them on the next podcast. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Letter bag. There you go. Mail bag. Yeah. Thanks a lot, kids. We'll see you next time on Visual Reflux. The podcast. The podcast. (laughs) All right. That worked. Good. That worked. Good. Um, Good. I look forward to it, and I will try to get to Moby as soon as possible. I mean, we'll get. We'll just use your snippet today, but we'll figure it out by next next time. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get it up tomorrow. I'm not even gonna worry about it today. Uh, So yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Right. Anchor seems like it's a much more reliable system than the one we used before. Isn't it amazing? You have no idea how far away I've been, and you haven't commented on my sound quality once. No, I, you know, it sounds great, and I can't wait to hear it. So when you post right. it, I'll definitely spend some time listening to it. So what time right. you got to be at work today? Uh, 11.15, so I've got to leave in 90 minutes. All right. Well, that's just enough time to do things at a relaxed pace. Good luck with that today. I'm going to try. I might even try to do some laundry. We Ooh. shall see. Yeah, I know. Yeah, no shit. All right. All right. Take care of yourself. I'll talk yep. to you soon. I'll stay in touch. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. Bye.